First Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 12. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, for it stands in Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak of speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Matt. Uh, Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning, this time we have to come together to open up your word with one another. I just pray that your spirit may be with us, that he may teach us today from your word, and that above all, Lord, that you may be glorified. It's in your son's name that we're able to pray these things. Amen. Please be seated. All right. So I'm very excited to be here to be preaching to you all today. Uh, I'm also very thankful that the pastors have allowed uh, the rookies to not have to stay in the summer in the Psalms, but to get to branch out to a few other things, passages in Scripture. So we're going to be in 1 Peter today. Um, Before we get into that, uh, just want to there's this movie in the late 80s, I think in the 80, 1987, so a little bit before I was born even. That's kind of weird, but um, it was this movie called Overboard. Um, it starred Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn. Not sure if you're familiar with this movie. It must have been somewhat good because I think they made another one. So either it's a good movie or Hollywood just very unoriginal. But yeah. anyways, the movie's about this rich heiress. So it's this woman played by Goldie Hawn who's incredibly wealthy, and she's really just a jerk to just about everyone she comes in contact with. She has a very smug attitude, is very, um, has this identity that she's just higher than everybody else, and she's better than everybody else. And because of that, she treats people really bad. Well, then she ends up having this accident where she falls off her boat and suffers from amnesia. So then she forgets everything that she, whoever she was. Um, she forgets that she's this very rich individual, and she ends up getting found by Kurt Russell, who is the, one of the individuals that she was a uh, jerk to. Um, and in only a way that a romantic comedy could, they make it seem kind of funny that he convinces her that she's his wife. Um, and then she has, the whole movie is this comedy of how she's adjusting to this new identity, how she's adjusting to uh, having to take care of all the domestic chores, and it's having to become a mother and do all these things. Um, and then it ends as just about any traditional romantic comedy would end. Um, everything's great because she becomes a better person, and overall it's all, all good. 
And this is a funny movie because she was primarily a jerk before. She, when she loses her identity, it's not that big of a deal because her identity before was kind of bad. Um, today, however, there's a similar struggle that we're experiencing that's not near as funny, where we too are struggling with this idea of identity. Um, people in our society every day struggle with feeling lost or feeling like they don't know who they are or what they're called to be doing or what's their purpose here. A lot of times we want to use these characteristics about ourselves or these, uh, these things, these identifiers, like maybe our political affiliation or our race or our gender or our sexual orientation or our jobs, our security, our wealth. We try to use these identifiers about us and we try to turn those into our identity itself. And these things lead to some problems. It leads to this idea that you have an identity that's not strong enough to stand. It's not firm. It's not sound. It cannot support the weight that you're putting on it. And we also see that it leads to another problem where it doesn't give you a satisfying purpose. All of these things that we try to put as our identity that can't stand up as our identity will ultimately fail in giving us a purpose that we could build our life on. Thankfully, this is an issue that was dealt even by the early church. We see Peter addressing this very issue of identity and purpose here in chapter 2. And it's in this letter that um, we get to see um, what is the solution to this problem of a mistaken identity. So as Peter discusses, um, what we see is that God himself is demonstrating how he is building us into something. He, what is he going to be building in us? He's building us, as Peter says, into the spiritual house. And how is he building us into the spiritual house? He's building us into the spiritual house by giving us a new identity as a holy priesthood. And why is he doing all this? He's doing it so that we can offer spiritual sacrifices to him. So what we're going to talk about today is how God is building us into a holy priesthood among stumbling people for a profound purpose through Christ. I'll say that one more time. God is building us into a holy priesthood among stumbling people for a profound purpose through Christ. So as we dive in here, our first point is going to be God is building us into a holy priesthood. If you look at verses 4 through 5 and you remove some of the descriptive phrases that Peter uses here, we see this phrase. As you come to him, you yourselves are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. This raises a few questions. First, who is the you that Peter's talking about? Who is it that's being built up? Two, who is it that's actually doing the building as well? And also, what even is a holy priesthood? What does that mean that we're being built up into this holy priesthood? So starting back up, who is the you? If we look back to the audience that Peter is initially addressing here, um, he tells us in verse 1 of chapter 1 um, that he is addressing the elect exiles of the dispersion scattered throughout a list of a bunch of Asian provinces, which is modern-day Turkey today. So he's talking to elect exiles. This means they're believers. They're people who believe in Christ, the work that he did, um, and are actively trying to follow him. He's talking to these believers. Also, they're not just believers. They're not just the elect, but they're also elect exiles. So they're believers who are in a place that is not their home. They're in a place that's scattered. They are displaced. Um, they're in a place that they don't belong to. 
And also we see through just the location and the different languages that Peter uses that it could be Gentile, a Gentile audience, but at the very least they must have a pretty solid Jewish background because Peter uses a lot of Old Testament verses here to kind of flesh out a lot of ideas that he's about ready to propose to them. So what we see is that this is a letter for believers who are in a world not their own trying to figure out what is their identity and what is their purpose. Does that sound familiar at all? This, is, this translates to us. We, too, are believers in a world that is not our own, trying to figure out what is our identity and what is our purpose. So the answer to the question of who is the you that Peter's talking about here, it's us. It was particularly them, but now it translates back to us. So another question we have is, well, who's doing the building then? I don't think it's a coincidence that it's Peter who's the disciple, who is the one in this letter, who is using this metaphor of building. Because you see, it was Peter who in Matthew 16, Christ tells him, actually gives him a new name. I feel like that's something you probably remember as well. But based on Peter's profession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, Christ then turns to Peter and tells him, Blessed are you, Bar-Jonah. You are now Peter, which essentially sounds like rock back in the Greek. And so it's this idea that um, Peter is given this new name, and then Jesus tells him, follows up with that with, on this rock, meaning Peter, I will build my church. So we see this idea, even back in Matthew 16, that it's not us building. Here in chapter 2, Peter doesn't say, you yourselves are building yourselves up into this spiritual dwelling, but it's that you are being built up. It's passive. Something is happening to us, and that we are being built up, and looking back to what Christ told Peter himself, we know that it is Christ who is responsible for this activity. Christ is the one who is building this. Peter knew that he was not the builder. Christ said, I will build my church. Even though Peter was the first leader of the church, he was the first apostle, um, he was the first among all these equals, he knew that ultimately Christ was the builder, that Christ was the one who's going to be responsible for his dwelling. And it's ultimately going to be built on something much greater than even himself. That Though it is very true that Christ would use him, it was his first sermon that sprung board this church back in Acts that Christ used him in mighty ways to build his church. But it was ultimately based on Peter's profession that who Jesus was, that he was the son of the living God, the Messiah, that Christ was going to be building this church. And then we get to the what is he building? And here Peter talks about he's building this spiritual house. It's a new spiritual house that Christ is going to be building us into, a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices. So what does this mean, this idea of being a holy priesthood? If you go back to the Old Testament, you see that priests were a particular tribe of Israel. So they were a chosen people among a chosen people. Israel itself was a chosen people. And then there's the, book, the tribe of Levi who was chosen amongst Israel to be God's priests. Um, and their jobs were to essentially be intercessors or representatives between God to man and man to God. So they were the in-between. There are these groups of individuals who would represent God to the people and would represent the people back to God. And they're also worshipers. So they're ones who would bring these sacrifices of praises and thanksgiving to the Lord. So that's kind of what Peter's talking about as being built here, is we're being built up into this new holy priesthood. Well, how is he building that? How is that being accomplished? And we see in verses 4 and 5 that it begins and ends with Christ. Verse 4 starts out with, as you come to him. So as we come to Christ, 
we're being built into the spiritual priesthood, into this holy priesthood. And verse 5 ends with, any sacrifices we offer to him are acceptable to God through Christ. So Christ is the linchpin. He is the hinge upon which all of these things that we're going to be doing, all of, the, uh, all of our new purpose is going to be rested and rooted in him. And we see that the way that it describes who Christ is, is he is the living stone, rejected by men, chosen and precious in the sight of God. These are the first hints we see of an identity that extends beyond ourselves. This is an identity that's not rooted in how others see you or even how you see yourself, but it is rooted in the declaration about who God says you are. When we go back to Christ, it says he was the living stone. We'll talk about what that means here in a second. But he's the living stone that was rejected by men. Men rejected him. They didn't want anything to do with him. But God declares that he is chosen and precious. So therefore, this identity does not rest on what other people think about who Christ is or what he did, but it rests on what God declares. So now we get into this idea of, well, what does it mean to be a living stone? Um, this, this terminology is depth that is pushing this metaphor that Peter is illustrating here of building. It's showing a uniqueness to this type of priesthood. It's not just this inanimate object that God is building. Now, I'm an engineer, but even as a kid, I did not really enjoy playing with Legos too much. I mean, I did it every once in a while, but it wasn't necessarily my passion. Um, see a lot of people nodding their, or shaking their heads in disappointment. But. <laughs> but at the end of the day, there were inanimate objects that, yeah, you could combine them in a lot of different ways, and you could make some really cool things, but they're still constrained to be these inanimate objects. They couldn't do anything beyond what you purpose them to do. This living stone reference, however, goes beyond that. It goes beyond just this piece to be used, but a piece that is alive. So we see that God is going to be building this holy priesthood out of living stones. Because of our identity in Christ, we too are living stones. He didn't just use some assortment of pieces. He didn't just take a little bit of you here, a little bit of this person from over here, and try to merge them all together into this new holy priesthood but he takes us as living stones, giving uniqueness and value to the stone. First, the stone that is Christ, and second, also to our identity in Christ and how we too are now identified in him as also being living stones. So this means that God wants you. He wants all of you. He doesn't just want a little piece, but he wants all of your thoughts, your emotions, your logic and reason. He wants all of your abilities and talents, everything that he's put inside of you, he is going to use to help build this new holy priesthood. He's going to be taking you as a living stone, building you up into a holy priesthood. And he isn't just leaving that. That's a very individual idea, this idea that God knows us intimately, that he knows everything about us, and he's going to be using us to overall accomplish his purpose. That's an amazing thing. But he doesn't just do that to leave us together or to leave us as an individual. He does this to build us up together. We together are living stones being built into this holy priesthood. We are not a living stone being built into a holy priest. We are a living stone being built into a holy priesthood. There's this idea that we are doing this all together, and that every single one of us is becoming a part of this priesthood. We no longer need Aaron or Daniel or Joey, Rich, or Matt to get up here in an ephod and sacrifice some goats for us. Um, all of us individually, we all come to God. We are all make up a part of this priesthood. 
God wants to use all of us, and he wants to do this together. It's not this Lone Ranger thing. It's not this, we're going to leave you up as these, a bunch of individuals, but he takes you as the full individual that you are, and he builds you up together into this holy priesthood. And once again, all of this is done through Christ. Always, it's always rooted on the identity that we have because of Christ. By believing in his work on the cross and that he reconciled us to God, we have been given this amazing new identity as being living stones to be built up as a holy priesthood. And he's building this up in verse 6. We see that he's building us up into, on this cornerstone. So if you look at verse 6, it says, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. That chosen and precious language links back to Christ so that we know that Christ is that cornerstone that God established um, way back in Isaiah 28, 16. So Peter references Isaiah 28, 16 to demonstrate that we're being built on a cornerstone. But why does he go back to Isaiah 28? Why is he using this passage? It's not just to prove that his ir- illustration works. That, see, I can use this idea of building stuff because God used it way back in the Old Testament. But he wants to convey a spiritual reality to us. And he wants to convey that reality from Isaiah 28. So when you go back to Isaiah 28, verses 16, and you read the context of that of that passage, what you can see is that there's this group of people that are living in direct rebellion of God. They're not living the way that God desires them to live, and they, in fact, are rejecting, the, rejecting God, and therefore his judgment is coming. That judgment is coming, and the only thing that will be able to withstand is what is referenced here in Isaiah 28, 16, that it will be this cornerstone that God himself will establish. That is the only thing that will be able to stand, the cornerstone that God establishes. And this demonstrates that Peter's telling us this is a firm foundation. This is something you can rest your hopes on. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. There is a surety there. There is a firmness there that we can rest our hopes, our dreams, and our very identity of who we are as people on the foundation that is Christ because that is the one thing that God says will never fall. So if you believe in Christ, if your hope is in him, not in yourself, you have this new identity. You have this new identity that's rested on a foundation that is Christ. And you receive that from God, and it cannot be shaken by man. So how does this happen? How do we get this new identity? And we see that at the very beginning, as you come to him. We share in this identity when we come to Christ in faith, accepting the work that he did for us. We share in this identity when we join Christ in the word and in prayer. And we share in this identity as we come to fellowship with one another. So Crossing Church, as we come together today to hear the word, as we meet together in life groups throughout the week, as we come together in journey groups or however we gather with one another, we are coming together and we are being built into something with one another. We are coming together to glorify in Christ And by coming together, we come closer to him. So as we come to Christ, we come closer together. And as we come together, we also come closer to Christ. So as we come to him in faith, in word, in prayer, and fellowship, we are receiving this new identity as a holy priesthood, being built up by God that cannot be shaken by man. 
So as we go on to our second point here, we see that God is building us into this holy priesthood, but he's building us among a stumbling people. So we're being built into the holy priesthood among stumbling people. Stumbling here does not mean a Christian who's just struggling, or a Christian who just has these fallbacks, or a Christian who just, um, every once in a while, just falls under the weight of sin. That's not the type of stumbling that's being talked about here. It's stumbling that's being proposed as a person who is completely rejecting God and who is hostile to God. That is the stumbling that Peter's talking about. We see that when people encounter Christ, when they encounter this cornerstone, they're either going to be built up on this foundation into this holy priesthood, or they're going to stumble. Those are the options. And Peter points to two more passages to discuss this very different reality for people who come in contact with this cornerstone and they stumble instead of being built up. The first passage here is Psalm 118.22. So that's where we get that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. If you go back to Psalm 118, the spiritual truth that Peter's talking about here is that there is a people, that God is an ultimate sovereign, but there is a people who still want to reject him. Psalm 118 is this joyous psalm about the steadfast love of God, but even among that steadfast love of God, there are people who do not want anything to do with God and are rebelling against him and rejecting this demonstration of love that God is showing to them. We also see this in the parable of the tenants when Jesus himself references back to this very passage as well, that the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He's talking about how God is giving blessing to this people and he's establishing this cornerstone for them, demonstrating his act of love, demonstrating what he wants to do for these people, but they still reject him. They still want nothing to do with them. They're still going to stumble on him. Peter's showing us that you cannot reject his purpose. The ultimate reality of that is that God does not allow you to reject his ultimate purpose. Even when we rejected him, when we put him on a cross and killed him, three days later he still rose so that we, just to demonstrate that we cannot do anything to thwart God's plan. His plan is going, and we can't reject it. He is in control. He is establishing a cornerstone. Regardless of what we do, regardless of how we perceive the cornerstone, it is the cornerstone, and it will stand. In the second passage in Isaiah 8, 14, we get this phrase, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. This passage is talking about this group of people who do not want to fear God as God or do not want to honor God as God. And the result is they fall on the stone of stumbling, this rock of offense. In our hearts, we want to be God. We do not want to let him get the glory of being God. We want to make ourselves great. And it was the same struggle that Israel was facing even back in the Old Testament. We're still facing that here today. That this is the root of the struggle in man's heart. That God is God, but we reject that. We do not want him to sit on his throne. We want to place ourselves there. And Peter's saying that that's that's not going to work. Even that becomes a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. That's how we get to the second part of verse 8, where we see this wonderful display of both God's sovereignty as well as man's responsibility. We see that man is choosing to disobey God. They're choosing to disobey the word, the word made flesh and the word itself. These are people that say by their words and actions, what you have for me, I don't care about that. In fact, 
if this is what you want for me, I'm going to purposely rebel. I'm going to purposely go and do the thing that you do not want me to do just to show you, just to spite you and show that you do not have control over my life. This is what you want me to do. I want nothing to do with it. You don't, I don't live under your sovereignty. You do not rule over me, and I'm going to display that by disobeying your very word. Even this we see is ultimately under the sovereignty of God. Peter says, even this, even these people who have disobeyed and thought that they have spent their life showing God who ultimately is in control, even they, at the last day, are doing as they were destined to do. God will accomplish his purpose. C.S. Lewis said, you will certainly carry out God's purpose however you act, but it makes a difference to you whether you serve like John or like Judas. You cannot triumph over God. You cannot defeat his purposes. All men and women will either accept the stone or reject the stone. You will either believe or disobelieve, obey or disobey. But either way, even though it's the greatest tragedy when a person does not accept the cornerstone that is Christ, all will be made to display the glory of God. If this is you today, if you're someone who has rejected the glory of God, I ask that you please consider the cornerstone, the person on which has not only died for us, but lived the life that we couldn't live in order that by believing in him, putting our faith and trust in him, we too can join in his identity. We too can join him as being chosen and precious. So if that's you, I ask that you consider this. Recognize that you've rebelled against the king and that it is only by Christ that you can be reconciled. So what is Peter's response then that there is this stone, and this stone will destroy some people. There are some people who are going to stumble on the cornerstone that is Christ. What is his suggestion to us? Is it to just give up? Is it just to say, well, God's got it. He's in control. See, it says right here, as they were destined to do. So what I do is irrelevant. That's not what Peter says. That has this idea of just such a lack of love for those people who are stumbling. So that that's, not, that's not what Peter responds with here. But another response to this idea that there's some that are going to stumble on the cornerstone is, well, maybe let's try to change the cornerstone. If it's going to cause people to trip, let's, let's smooth it out a little bit. Let's cut off some corners. Let's, let's make it something that just isn't that hard to deal with. Let's remove some of the calls in our life to come and die. Let's remove the lordship that Jesus puts that if you want to come to believe with him. And instead, let's, let's just make it a little bit easier to stomach. Let's just make this a little bit easier idea for these folks so that way they won't stumble. He says that this too is something that we cannot do. There is a reality that there are some things like the way we dress or maybe the songs we sing, some of the food and drink that we partake in, that these stumbling blocks, as it says in 1 Corinthians, are something that we can remove from one another. Um, if there's someone who struggles with drinking, a stumbling block to remove there is the beer that you like to have when you go out to dinner. Those are things that we can remove amongst one another. But what we can never remove is preaching Christ crucified. This is the cornerstone that God established. We don't get to change what God himself established. And so in light of people that there are people who are going to stumble over the stone, the answer is not to just give up. The answer is not to try to change the stone, but it is to fully and confidently proclaim him. Which brings us to our third point here, that God is building us into this holy priesthood among stumbling people for a profound purpose. 
before Peter talks, so he just has this little diversion where he talks about people who are stumbling. And before he really gets into the idea of, okay, well, what are you supposed to do about this? He reminds his audience, he reminds the readers, he reminds us that first and foremost, we must know our identity. So he brings about verse 9 where he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. This, this means, this reliance on this identity is crucial to any change you want to make in your own life. You cannot white-knuckle change. You cannot just grit your teeth and try and try and try, and eventually change will come. Ultimately, we must rely on the Spirit who comes to us and recognizes that there is a new identity inside of us. And it is because of this identity that we can change the way we ultimately act. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. This new identity transcends any other identifier we could possibly use. It transcends everything else that we want to associate with here on this earth. This is our core. This is who we are. And this is what will ultimately bring unity amongst the church. This is what gives us the purpose and the power to carry out God's will for our lives. So what is this profound purpose? If we go back to verse 5, uh, we see that there is this sequence that we are to offer spiritual sacrifices. God is making us into a spiritual dwelling as a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices. This means we, first and foremost, we have a job as a priesthood, and this is to represent God and to worship Him. However, part of this idea of spiritual sacrifices goes beyond just representing God and worshiping Him. If we look back at Romans 12, there's this term living sacrifice, that you are to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. And it's combining this idea of the living stone and the spiritual sacrifice that we're putting to me. It's combining them into this one language that you are now a spiritual, that this is a living sacrifice. That God wants all of you, He wants your whole body all working to His glory, all working to accomplish His purpose. That's how, that is this purpose that we have been assigned to, is to give God everything and to try to carry out His purposes. And how do we do that? We first begin in verse 9 by proclaiming the excellencies of Him who has called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. So the first thing we do is we proclaim to one another. We proclaim Him. We proclaim that we have been brought out of darkness and into His marvelous light. A few summers ago, I had the opportunity to go down to South Dakota with our life group. And if anyone knows Max Jackal, and you go to South Dakota with Max Jackal, you're inevitably going to end up in a cave. Uh, uh, he's a geologist through and through. And when we went to South Dakota, we ended up uh, in this cave. Um, and we're touring the cave. And at the very end of the tour, you're thousands of feet below rock. I'm not sure if it's thousands. It feels like you're real far down there, though. <laughs> And then they do this thing where they turn off all the lights. So they turn off everything, and there is no light. It is absolute darkness. And frankly, it's like really cool for all of about 20 seconds, and then you just start panicking inside. Because we're not meant to live in darkness. But the reality is that there is a spiritual darkness that is far worse that many of our souls can still have to battle against. And there's these people all around us that are still always living in the spiritual darkness. 
So what can this darkness look like? Well, it can look like when you have this misplaced sense of identity where you either lose your identity or you try to make some characteristic about yourself as your identity. And when you take this characteristic and you say, this is now my identity, this is who I am, as soon as any person comments on it or attacks it or even rejects that characteristic about you, it feels as if your very core, who you are as a person, is being rejected. Because in your eyes, it is. This results in you reacting in a pretty radical way. So it's no longer just, I disagree with you on this issue. It's like, no, you disagree with me as who I am. I can't live amongst you if you're going to disagree with who I am. And this results in this idea that you're going to be living in this sense of heightened conflict forever because as soon as someone tries to attack this characteristic about you, you would take that as they're attacking my identity. They're attacking who I am. And I am going to lash. I will defend who I am. Another darkness that we experience is people who just don't recognize their identity. They don't know who they are. They feel lost. They feel that there's just no point, that everything's hopeless, it's meaningless. Um, They have no sense of identity. They have no sense of purpose. And it leads into this deep depression. There are other forms of darkness that we currently live in. We have praise to God that he has brought us out of this darkness and into his marvelous light. When we realize that we have identity that is apart from what others perceive of us, it's, it's separate from even what we perceive of ourselves, that it is firmly established on who God declares us to be, that is a solid foundation that we can stand on, that can give us this purpose, and that is what we're called to proclaim. We're called to proclaim these joys of being brought out of that darkness into his marvelous light. We're called to proclaim that we are people who did not receive mercy, but have now received mercy. A people who had no belonging. We didn't belong anywhere. No one wanted us. But now God, the God of the universe, has said, I want you. Come to me. Not only does God have claim on our lives because he created us, but he has claim on our lives because he has given himself fully for us. He died to pay for us, to ransom us to himself. This is what we get to proclaim to one another as well as to the non-believer. The second way that we offer these spiritual sacrifices is that we abstain. So in verse 11, it says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Peter uses some pretty like good language here, pretty elaborate language to describe this internal conflict that we are experiencing. It's very vivid. It's very uh, just powerful language that he's using. I urge you, I urge you to abstain from these desires which wage war against your soul. This shows that we're called to strive. It's called to be a battle. It's a struggle. It's something that you're going to work hard at. It's something we're going to work towards to try to abstain from these sinful desires because they don't belong to us anymore. We have a new identity. We are a new priesthood, a holy priesthood. We have been separated from the sinful identity, from these sinful passions that we used to have. And the fact that they're still present in our lives is just evidence of this conflict that is waging inside of us. And we are called to wage war with this conflict because they don't belong in us anymore. We are new. These sinful desires that are still indwelling in us, indwelling in me, indwelling in you, are these things that we should fight against. We should do everything in our power to abstain. This is where things like disciplines and accountability come into play. This is where, after firmly knowing who you are identified as, that we can get to work, that we can start 
working together with one another to abstain from these sinful desires. Finally, in verse 12, we see that there's hope for the Gentile. Um, in verse 12, it says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The NIV version translates Gentile into pagan, so you have a pretty good idea that it means people who do not believe, the non-believers that we interact with. We are still called to act well around them and to witness well to them. But I want to draw your attention to the last visitation there. There's two potential meanings of what visitation could be. It could be that final judgment. That's the main meaning of when visitation is used, is to represent that final judgment of God when he comes to this world to separate those who are his. And that on that last day, those will glorify God in heaven. But it's also could mean the day that when Christ chooses to bring this person to themselves, where because of how we've acted around these non-believers, because of our witness and proclaiming them, we see that these people are coming to know God. He is visiting them with his Holy Spirit, and they're coming to repent and believe in him. And on that day, they too will glorify God. So regardless of how you read that passage, the point of application here is this. Act well where we go. Act well among the non-believers and the believers alike, because on the final day, either when they come to salvation or on the day of judgment, it will lead to God being glorified. So that's a good word for us to just know that whatever we do, as long as we're behaving honorably, um, regardless of how they react, it will glorify God. And it is time. So where does that leave us? What, what do we have to do with this, this message from First uh, Peter here? The first thing is, if you are currently someone who does not believe, we proclaim to you the excellencies of him who has brought us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That there is someone who upholds the universe with the word of his power, and he desires you to come to know him and to believe and trust in him. He gave up his very son for our sins, that we may believe in him and come to be known as chosen and precious. However, if you're someone who's still struggling to live this new purpose, to live this uh, I, this purpose of offering spiritual sacrifices to God. If this is you, I first encourage you to remember who you are. Now, since there's like a thousand kids here, I'm assuming that everyone's seen The Lion King, right? <laughs> Lion King, it's a, it's, that, that's the movie from my youth, my favorite, uh, favorite movie. But in, in The Lion King, there's this symbol, there's this illustration where Simba doesn't know who he is, doesn't know what he's doing, um, and he's just running away from who he is. And then in kind of a paganistic way, like a voice from on high representing his father comes and rumbles, Simba, remember who you are. <laughs> and, and he goes on to tell him that you are my son and the true king. And then it very dramatically like fades off, remember, remember. It's a great scene. So Crossing Church, I tell you, remember who you are, that you are a holy priesthood. To remember, like Peter says in verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Remember your identity. God knows you as a living stone. He knows your thoughts, your attitudes, your actions, everything that makes up who you are. He knows it. And he calls you chosen and precious. 
remember who you are. Then if you still struggle with proclaiming, I encourage you to start small. Start at the dinner table. Start with your friends and your family. Start in your life groups and let that continually branch out until more and more people you feel comfortable proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And also, if you're struggling with abstaining from the flesh, remember that you are a sojourner and an exile, that this world isn't our home, and that anything we give up for the sake of the gospel here is well worth the reward we have in heaven. It's well worth the place we will see for all eternity. It's by these things that we're able to offer our spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God. So remember, you are a holy priesthood chosen by God among stumbling people to a profound purpose of offering these spiritual sacrifices by proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light and by abstaining from these things that wage war against our soul, all rooted on the cornerstone that is Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word you have for us in First Peter. We pray that we always remember our identity, that we always remember who we are, what you've, what you've done for us in Christ. They remember that we are a holy priesthood, a royal nation, this people for your own possession, and that we too um, get to join you in the work that you're doing here among those who do not believe, and that we get to partake with you in not only just experiencing you, experiencing who you are, but you ask us to join with you, to proclaim you amongst the nations, amongst those who do not know you, who do not believe in you, Lord. Um, so we pray that we may just stand firm on this identity that we have and that by it um, we may continually walk in the ways that you've apportioned for us. So it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.